Thanks for welcoming me back. Um, I am not an ordained pastor. I'm not currently in ministry. Uh, I did attend Covenant Seminary and have known a whole lot of people that have um, been part of uh, City Church in the past, a lot of people kind of in the St. Louis um, Covenant Seminary community. And so feel like um, I feel like I've known this church for years and years and years, even though I guess about two months ago was the first time I'd ever, ever been here, ever worshiped with you. So um, I, uh, I still kind of preach and teach here and there, and I'm glad to be able to be here with you all today. So uh, volume's good. Everyone can hear me good? Hear me well? All right. Uh, today we're looking at uh, the book of Luke, and uh, Luke's the third book of the New Testament. Uh, Luke was written by Luke the physician, and um, his, uh, he has a twin volume, so it's kind of considered two parts of one volume, Luke and Acts. And Luke's, um, uh, he had a, a benefactor named Theophilus who sort of paid for um, him to be able to help compile and write this account. Um, and you'll see that in the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts. Uh, today we're looking at Luke chapter 24, uh, which is part of the resurrection narrative. So it's not, it's not Easter time, uh, but I wanted to share specifically from this passage because there were a few things that uh, I've been, been thinking about and I think the Lord has been teaching. Um, so why don't we look at Luke chapter 24, uh, verses 1 through 12 together. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this congregation, Lord. Thank you for Pastor David, who's coming in, um, Lord, to be your, your under-shepherd here at City Church. Um, we pray for just these next few minutes, Lord, that your word would be, um, like your prophet Jeremiah says, uh, a hammer that smashes rocks into pieces. Pray that um, what is useful would, would sink deep in, what is um, not useful or unhelpful would, would fall away from our ears. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, a couple of weeks ago, my family and I, here in the front, we went to uh, a place called Sound Waves. And it's a... Uh, it's a water park that's attached to Opryland Hotel, and you, have to, you actually have to stay in the hotel to get access. So you, you go to the water park, you sleep there a night, and then you go to the water park the next day. So we had a really fun time, and on the second day, there's, there's one ride there that is a, uh, it's sort of like a, a ramp, and the water shoots up the ramp, and then you, um, you kind of get on a boogie board, and you sort of ride the wave. So it's pretty cool. It's really fun. The only problem is that the, the line for this ride is extremely long. Um, it's an hour or more. So 
my wife and one of my sons are going to go get in line and, ride, or, and wait for an hour to ride on this ride. So my lovely, adoring wife comes over and says, here are our son's goggles. Can you hang on to these? And so I'm sitting there kind of right in front of the ride. So I put the goggles down next to my keys, sunglasses, whatever. And so they, I sit there for an hour. They, they go through the ride. It's really fun. We all get up, play for a couple more hours, get in the car, we drive home. So guess who forgot the sun's goggles and left them at the water park? This guy. Uh, so my wife and I subsequently had a very productive discussion about how next time maybe I cannot forget the goggles, um, among other things. And um, that's one extremely small example of my own forgetfulness. Um, and I'm sure you each have your own, but forgetfulness of small things. In, the, in our passage today, we're looking at uh, forgetfulness on sort of a different level. We're looking at kind of two groups of people, this, the, the women who went to the tomb and the disciples who forgot significant words, words uh, that Jesus had taught them, words that formed who they were in their identity and told them about why Jesus had come to earth in the first place. And so I really want to zero in today on basically on two lines in this text. Verse 8, where it says, and they remembered his words, that is, the women. And verse 11, in reference to the disciples, where it says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So much of what it means for us to be believers in Christ Jesus and to walk as his disciples, it, it depends on, on not, our knowledge and memory, our, re, our, our recalling what we've learned, what we know about who Jesus is, and being reminded of what he's done in Christ. And we trust, as we remember, we trust who he is, and as we forget what he's done, we struggle to trust. So there's basically two reasons today uh, I want to focus on God, on why God wants us to hear and remember what he's done, what his promises are. And it's related to the way the two different groups responded, the women and then the disciples. He wants us to remember his words so that we don't despair, so that we don't um, despair of, of the pain and the difficulty and the struggles that we experience, um, but also so that we don't hear false promises, so that we don't hear useless or idle, idle talk, idle knowledge. So first off, despair. Forgetting God's words and promises can lead to despair, can lead to, to sadness. In Luke, 20, Luke 23, right before, um, right before this passage, uh, it's one of the bleakest moments in human history, I think. Jesus, the, the chosen one, the Son of God, has been killed. He's been laid in a tomb, and his, um, all of his relatives, his disciples... They're filled with grief. They're confused. He was supposed to be the one to redeem Israel, to put everything right, to overthrow the Romans. And it's hard to imagine the, the level of despair and grief that they were experiencing in this, in this short window of time. What were they supposed to do? What, were they, what, what was next after Jesus was laid in the earth? But his disciples and his family, they had forgotten what Jesus had told them explicitly in the words in the in the days and months leading up to his crucifixion. 
in all four of the Gospels, there are actually multiple references by Jesus himself talking about when he's going to be, they're going to go up to Jerusalem and he's going to be handed over, he's going to be delivered, some, some variation of that. There's a couple of examples that are some less explicit, more, more, some less explicit, some more explicit. Matthew 12, 40 says this. So this is Jesus talking to his disciples. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, so that's, that's a tad bit cryptic. That's not crystal clear. Luke 9, 43 to 45. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That's a little bit clearer. Matthew 20, 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. That's pretty explicit. And the way that, what we know about the way the gospel writers compiled their records, they relied on their own experience, their own eyes and their own ears, but they also relied on other eyewitnesses, friends, acquaintances, as they're compiling these records. And um, the, the sheer volume of teaching that Jesus was doing in this three-year time period of his ministry uh, he was teaching constantly. And we know, we, we have good reason to believe that much of what's recorded in the Gospels was repeated probably a number of times. In other words, there's no way that the disciples sort of just didn't hear it, or those around him just didn't hear it. They heard this teaching. They knew that he had told them he was going to have to go up to Jerusalem to be handed over to be killed. There's no way that they could have missed it. And that's easy for us to forget. We, read the, we get to read the whole story, sort of beginning, middle, end. And it's hard for us to put ourselves in, in their shoes. And I, and I don't want to suggest that they, were, that they should have said, okay, we know what's going to happen with Jesus. He's told us. And that they should have been emotionless and kind of looking at their watch. Okay, he's, he's going to go in the tomb. He's going to die. He's going to rise. And then everything will be okay. Right? But they couldn't have responded that way because they're, they're human beings. But Jesus did, he did communicate with them what was coming, the weight of what was coming. And they were utterly unprepared. And in their grief and their confusion, they, they forgot. It took two men in dazzling apparel to remind them, why do you seek the living among the dead? And after those two men reminded them, they remembered his words. Those words came flooding back to them. And so I think the question today is, what makes us forget? What, what makes us forget God's promises to us? He's, he's given us forgiveness of sins. He's, um, he gives good gifts like a, a vocation that you feel called to, um, a spouse, a child, a friend, um, a, a beautiful sunset. He gives us good gifts. Um, but we forget, and in our pain and our struggle, it, it, it clouds out, it pushes out our, our remembrance of his goodness. Kind of the, one of the most incredible examples of this is actually in the Bible from Exodus where, uh, and, and when you think about the time frame, it really is kind of amazing, but 400 years in slavery, the people of, of uh, Israel were, 
Moses, Moses comes along, Moses and Aaron, they do the 10 miracles and uh, lead, the people out of, uh, lead the people out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. And within about six or seven weeks, the people of, of God are literally saying, would that we were back in Egypt in slavery. So in terms of forgetting what God has done, that's a pretty powerful example. And I think each one of us in here can, can think of, of moments and times like that where we, we know that we, we've forgotten what God's done in his promises. Uh, one, of, one of the best days of my life, bar none, was June 19th, um, 2009. And I, my first daughter was born. And, or sorry, my first child, my daughter. And um, one of my favorite verses of all time is Psalm 34, 8, which says, um, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so I was holding my, my child, my firstborn, and I could literally taste and see that the Lord is good. I could, I could hold her. I could kiss her. I could smell her baby head. And uh, it was so palpable and so physical. And uh, sure enough, within uh, a relatively short time after that, we had some, some pretty tough struggles in our, in our family, and I was in a time of extreme darkness and forgot. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't focused on the love of God and, and on his, his presence in my life. I was thinking about struggle and difficulty. And um, I think at no time do we sense our own profound limitations as people than when we we praise God in one moment and we curse him in the next. And it happens over and over and over again. There are legitimate things that vie for our attention, legitimate, you know, we have to, we have to pay bills, we have to fix a broken disposal. True story, last week. Um, we have to pick kids up from this place to that place. We have to do all these different things. And I think, um, in terms of remembering God and, and his, his presence in our life. I, I don't have any earth-shattering insights, except I think, I think that we do, um, we do need to ask God for a palpable sense of his presence in our day-to-day lives. And uh, Philippians 4, 6-7 says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I think I, I just take that as saying, he, he, he'll remind us of who we are and of what he's done. Any time of day, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're wearing, however much guilt or shame you're carrying, however angry you are. And... I think one other, one other thing besides prayer is, um, is gathering uh, with, with God's people. And I think in our, in our opening, um, in our call to worship, it says, not neglecting to meet together. And I think that, um, you know, it doesn't sound like cool cultural, countercultural Christianity to say, go to church. That's the lesson from today, go to church. But I think... Um, I, I, I think that is a, a lesson, quite frankly, and I think especially after the pandemic when so many people I know and that we know um, 
really suffered from not being able to gather together with the people to not, um, to not have the, A, just the physical interaction with other people, but to not hear the word, to not be able to, to sing in person. I think when we're able to sing, hear the word, when we, when we partake of the body and the blood, when we're able to look in the eyes of our brothers and sisters every week, that reminds us of who God is and what he's done. And over and over again, I mean, it's not always fun to go to church, but like over and over and over again, accumulated years of gathering with God's people is, is a, does profound things to shape how we see the world and what story we're a part of. God wants us to remember his promises so, so that we, we don't despair and we know what story we're a part of, but also because um, he doesn't want us to remember other promises or empty promises, idle promises. Look at verse 11 one more time. It says, um, so the women came and they told these things to the apostles. And then verse 11 says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. So this is a pretty interesting verse. Not only had the disciples forgotten the words that Jesus had said about what he needed to do, but they responded completely dismissively to the women, the women that brought them this message. And the, his words seemed to them an idle tale. So I dusted off some Greek this week. You should be very proud of me. I dusted off some Greek, and I wanted to look at this verse because idle tale looked a little bit like an interesting word. And it is, it's a pretty unique word. This is the only use of this word in the New Testament, and it's actually a fairly unique word in the entire um, ancient Near East context. And the best way to translate it is, yeah, uh, idle tale, idle talk, nonsense. The dictionary actually said humbug. So um, the, the apostles, they didn't just not believe the women. They said dismissive. I mean, complete, that's nonsense. And I think as we, as we struggle to remember the promises of God, it becomes harder to recognize uh, harder to recognize the truth, and we feel it's easy for other narratives to fill our heads about what's true about the world and, and our lives. Um, I don't know who came up with the phrase, nature abhors a vacuum, but I think uh, it's definitely, that's definitely the case with, um, with the way we're wired. If, if, if our first love isn't Jesus and what he's done, and if that's not the story that's true about our lives, then other narratives, other things are are going to pour in. That's just, that's just going to happen. If God and what he's done in Christ and the Holy Spirit is not guiding our story, then those things are going to come in, helped along by Satan himself, by our sinful nature, um, by our, uh, our circumstances around us. The truth will seem like nonsense, and nonsense will seem like the truth. So think about the moment in which we live. We live in the information age. Um, the rate of techno technological innovation, I'm sure there's some people in here that could probably school me on this, a lot of smart people here, but the rate of technological innovation that has occurred in our lifetimes, the people in this room, um, is, is pretty significant, arguably more rapid rate than any other, any other era. Uh, there are those that argue it's, it's more consequential for shaping human behavior, and by information we mean obviously internet, social media, um, Industry 4.0, whatever, all, all technology writ large. You can argue that it's 
there are those that argue it's more um, consequential for shaping human behavior than something like the printing press, which was globally uh, significant. The Industrial Revolution, 18th, 19th century, um, these are massive world-changing events. And the era that we live in is, um, is pretty significant. There was a, a philosopher, Canadian guy, philosopher of, of sort of media and technology named Marshall McLuhan, and he talked, um, he talked mainly about the, the form of technology and what it does to us. And he's, he's not famous, but if you, there's a phrase called, the, he said the medium is the message, which is sort of the only noteworthy thing he said, mainly that the, the form of technology affects us as much as the, mess, the, the, the text or the video that's coming through to us. And he said this, one of the effects of living with electric information is that we live habitually in a state of information overload. There's always more than you can cope with. He said that in 1967. And so what I'm trying to get at here is, is that um, it's not an anti-technological screed. It's, um, it's that there is uniquely in our time an unbelievable amount of volume that is coming at us at all times. Um, it doesn't, even if you don't watch cable news or do social media, it, it's, it's a remarkable time that we live in. If you lived in medieval Scotland, you, you didn't have this problem. You might have cholera or somebody raiding your village or something, but you did not have this problem. It's unique to us in our time. And so much of this information is good. It's not, um, we're, some of it's, a lot of it's edifying, but, but I think the sheer volume crowds out so much in our daily lives. It crowds out our ability to be still for two minutes sometimes. I'm very, I, I'm extremely guilty of this, and my wife can tell you I'm an extremely distractible person. And uh, just as a sort of a fun, uh, self-flagellating exercise, I'm, I'm going to read uh, a very short snippet from my browser history from this past week. This is Google searches. This is articles I've read. And, and I'm just curious to get your reaction. So um, this is true, true story. So here's, I'll just start, I'm gonna read about five or six. US employers added 850,000 jobs, unemployment rate up to 5.9%. DeVita Medical Group acquisition. Where was Hoosiers filmed? US track and field trials day one, day two, day three. 50 best space movies of all time. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Thursday issued a moratorium on federal executions. Bill Hader, Alan Alda impression. All recipes, fluffy pancakes recipe. Okay, if that doesn't just make you incredibly stressed out just to even hear it read, it, makes, it stresses me out to read it. And um, the point is not that the internet is bad or that even each one of those searches wasn't really important, but... Um, the, the, again, the point is, is that um, part of being a disciple and remembering who God is and what he's done is having a moment to remember. So whether it's church on Sunday or whether it's um, five minutes in the morning or a, or a walk um, or, or yeah, any kind of solitude to, to meditate and remember who God is. 
Um, I think it's I think it's really important. It's got that looks different for every person, of course. Um, but I think when one of the main narratives and stories that's trying to get trying to get into us at all time, and that we're it's the air we breathe, is that we're consumers of products and information, and that's 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 largely what the world tells us, and um, that's an insidious message. It's not a good one. We're created to live in relationship with the holy God who made us and to live in some kind of relationship with the people around us. There's a lot of talk of community and community is really hard to do. I don't know exactly what it's supposed to look like, but some kind of relationship with the people that God has put in our lives and that he puts around us. It's difficult. We get sadness, distraction. There's so many things that make us forget what God has done. What did, uh, what did Peter do in the last verse? Peter got up and he went to find out himself what was happening at the tomb. He, uh, I'm sure he had doubts, but, but he went. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home and and he went home marveling at what had happened. He went and he marveled because the tomb was empty. And I can pretty much guarantee you he remembered Jesus' words at that point about what Jesus said he had to do. I think the main reason why we're here today and the main reason why we're here every Sunday is to be reminded again and again that the tomb is empty. Jesus Christ suffered and died. He lived a perfect life, suffered and died, rose again that we might have life. We're not simply a product of our struggle, our pain, our despair, our distractions. God's weaving together something in you and in all of us together that we can't necessarily see. And we will forget again and again and again. It, we, we will. But the biggest, most important story that you can come back to after you forget again and again, you can remember again and again and again that the tomb is empty. And my, my prayer for City Church, especially as you welcome David in, um, is that you all remind each other over and over again. Um, and I'm sure David will be um, uh, quite a blessing and, and such a strong shepherd for you guys that you guys will rem remind each other um, over and over and over again that the tomb is empty. Lots of other things happening, lots of sad things, lots of distractions. But at the end of the day, the tomb is empty. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these people, for these saints. Pray for um, Pastor David and his family, Lord. Pray that you um, would give them safe travels. Thank you for um, their finding a house. And um, Lord, I just pray that you would do a new thing in City Church and, and pour out your spirit here. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.